Hello and welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Seiler, and today we're talking about relationships, pretty much. All the ways in which we conceive of them and the obligations that we feel and how partners place stresses upon each other, but also provide you know the compliment the sometimes we say life partner or the we might even say the person who's intended for us all, all of those sorts of things we're going to be circling around today yeah and it's going to be a little bit of a grab bag here but i think it's a very important <laughs> topic that we are going to try to dive into a little bit yeah and as we were kicking the idea around and thinking about how to title this part of what we were were after was the notion that when we're in a relationship whether it's a good relationship or a bad relationship there's there's always more than just two partners who are say in a contract or making demands on each other it's not a purely mercenary exchange there's something in the relationship itself that comes to take on a life of its own and it could be it could be good or it could be bad or a mixture of both depending on what people are bringing to it and how they're conceiving of it and whether they're on the same page with what's going on mm-hmm. and you know i think if you're looking at your relationship in a purely like market or transactional basis and i think you're on a, a pretty you know a rocky found or i guess a sandy foundation for uh, the basis of that relationship. Yeah, it's interesting that you use that metaphor of the foundation. Sand is no foundation at all, right? This is Descartes mm-hmm. uses that idea in his uh, discourse on method, and he says that all these other philosophies in his his time were based on on sand and so you know that's not bad until something comes along to disturb things and then suddenly your foundation is gone and he wanted to build on on rock and i think we could mm-hmm. transpose that idea into relationships so this is actually a great place to start you mentioned people having a sort of transactional view of their relationships that you know i give in order to to get why is that a unsuitable foundation um because you know i was looking up the you know different types of uh economies and, and it really brought me to this idea of the the sharing economy because the the dichotomy here is that i'm giving something in a, in a market economy that's very transactional i'm giving something of material value in order to gain something of material value it's always just like back and forth about what i can give or i can get but in a an idea of a uh sharing economy you have this thing where you're giving out um, things in order to try to um, build relationships here. You're, you're giving it without the obligation of getting something back. You are getting, uh, you're trying to uh, 
hit that idea of reciprocity. Uh, but that idea of reciprocity is the thing that builds those relationships. And you know, you can have a market economy as well uh, with uh, the sharing economy. But the sharing economy is the thing that builds a relationship um, in and of itself. Yeah, I think that's that's completely right to be able to make and we don't necessarily have to use those terms to be able to make a distinction between two different modes of looking at things. And there are some relationships, I think, in which it's perfectly appropriate for us to have a very hard nosed. I'm not going to put stuff into this if I'm not going to get stuff out like business relationships. Right. Right. Or when we're first starting out in. Um, some sort of relationship with our neighbors, it, you know, it's nice to invite people over and, and cook them some food or offer them some drinks. But if they don't reciprocate, they're not coming over very often after that, right? If they, <laughs> if they never uh, hold up their end. But th- there's, you might say there's certain thresholds within personal relationships where if we, if we do look at it in a market sense, however we want to describe that perspective, we're going to cut ourselves off from possibilities for growing in that relationship. We're going to make the other person at some point in time feel like they're just being used or valued only in terms of what they're putting on the table you know, at, at that point for us, and we're going to screw things up. It, it's not to say that you know, finances don't matter or uh, we shouldn't uh, demand some sort of, you know, some sort of reciprocity on the part of our our partner that could be measured, but we we can't just be in that. And I think there's a lot of people who do look at their relationships that way, or or there's relationships in which one partner doesn't see it that way, and the other partner does see it that way, and those end up being bad relationships. Now, here's an interesting question. Are those bad relationships for both of them? Or are those bad relationships just for the person who wants it to be something more, but not a bad relationship for the person who wants to keep it purely transactional? What do you think? I think it's it's bad for both, um, just because there's an, a fundamental mismatch of what the other is expecting from it. Okay. And so... Um, you know, both the person that wants a transactional is put upon by the other person that wants more, as well as the one that wants more is uh, feeling like their um, affections or whatever are being rebuffed because the other person doesn't want that. It, it just, you know, you want to have some sort of um, simpatico equality in the, what you're expecting from that relationship in the first place. Yeah. You know, I was just reading Cicero's uh, On Friendship, this this book that he wrote that's very relevant today uh, for producing some some lecture videos for my classes on it. And one of the topics that he talks about is these these ide- these wrong headed ideas about friendships that were quite common back in ancient times. And one of them was precisely this, that you should only uh, exhibit goodwill, which is benevolentia in in Latin. Um, You should only exhibit goodwill to the degree that the other person exhibits goodwill. So you should kind of, you know, tailor it or, or, um, what would you say, measure it according to that? And Cicero says, well, this is a terrible idea because it treats friendship as if it's purely what we would nowadays call transactional. And it's based on a, on a it's sort of like a, 
idea that that everything is a zero sum game that if i give more i'm i'm getting screwed or i'm getting cheated and i i can't mm-hmm. you know get get back and and cicero says look at you know affection is not like that it's not as if by putting by giving more generously and he uses this example of measures like pouring uh, grain into measures he says listen if a little bit overflows that's perfectly fine it's not going to go to waste you know mm-hmm. and if you're measuring with a instead of like you know rounding it off right at the top uh and 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 making sure that it's like completely even uh if you allow there to be a little bit more on top that's going to be fine and i and i think that when we don't do that when we don't give a little bit more than is expected or required over time that erodes the relationship it Mm -hmm. And and so a good relationship, like you're saying, is part of a sharing economy, right? And so you brought up a zero sum game, and that makes me think about uh, you know that mode of thinking within uh, game theory and the idea of like relationships as positive sum games. And that uh, yeah. you know that we are that you have to explain a both, little bit. I think. Oh, okay, so like a zero sum game is like you know we're playing uh, chess or something, and, and there's there's only I guess three outcomes: you either I win and you lose, you win I lose, or we're a stalemate. But there's no other way of doing that. You, you can't have both people win. In a positive sum game, um, the the point is not to win, but to continue playing the game because everyone benefits from playing the game. And so in a relationship, having a positive sum game is that the relationship in and of itself is a good that cannot, that cannot be found outside of that relationship. Um, and that, uh, you know, if you look at the whole host of like what it is to have a good life or a eudaimonic life or flourishing life, you know, a lot of them require you to have good, strong relationships. Um, you know, you look at Aristotle. He says that you, you yeah. have to have a good life. You have to have those good, for, good relationships. And you know, I would rather have a, a life with lots of good relationships than one solitude and by myself. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you know, in ancient philosophy, and also this this ran throughout medieval and a lot of early modern philosophy. There is that realization that without some kinds of good relationships, and they have different ways of conceiving or defining them, our, our lives are, are lacking. And going back to Cicero's on friendship, which is, which is taking off from Aristotle, but going, going beyond it, he actually um, draws out this connection <clears throat> between moral virtue or, or excellence, however we want to, to understand it, you know, good character traits and friendship. And he says that even people who don't value good character traits recognize that they they want friendship. They may not enjoy it completely because they they make themselves unable to be a good friend, but they can recognize that this is, this is something that they would like to have, almost counterfactually, you could say. Mm-hmm. If they weren't the kind of person who can't be a, a decent friend, they would want to have a, a friend. And... You know, you're right. Aristotle um, says that it's not enough just to be a, a good person, to have good character. We also need to have relationships. Cicero goes even further and says um, maybe the, the relationships themselves are even more important than moral virtue, which is an wow. interesting idea. 
And he, yeah. I don't think that he's pushing that consistently throughout his works. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, and he is putting it in the mouth of somebody else because it's a dialogue. So, mm-hmm. but, but I, I think that really is an, an idea he's entertaining there. And, and I think a lot of people do that. You know, we don't have to be completely perfect people in order to have good sustaining relationships, whether mm-hmm. they're friendships or, you know, romantic partnerships with a spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, or even, you know, at a, sort of like a, a less intimate level, neighbors, um, you know, people, people like that. And then, you know, we've got all the relationships within the family that we might think about, which are often quite, uh, you know, they change over time and, and they can mm-hmm. often be quite difficult. Think about sibling rivalry, you know, <laughs> right. And that, that brings up the, I think we touched on this a little bit last week, but the whole point of either loyalty or like oh, yeah. doing what is right. And you have to like kind of choose which value you value the most. And, um, and I, I feel like that's one of the things about uh, relationships that it, 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 because we get so close, especially to our spouses that sometimes it gets really muddled about at what point in time do you, uh, if the, if they've done something very, very bad, do you like turn them in? Like, you know, um, if they like cheat on their taxes, do you like, turn them in when it's your friend or your family probably not you know but like you know there's they murdered somebody lo- yeah yeah murders you know and I, I brought up in our notes on you know Macbeth and the story of Lady Macbeth oh, and Macbeth and, yeah, and yeah. how she's goading him in order to kill uh King Duncan and and he does it because you know that's that's his, his wife that's his, his closest relationship and he seems to value that more than anything else yeah, you know, again, uh, bringing up Cicero an awful lot in this book on friendship, but it's it's really quite good. You know, one of the things that he talks about early on are these demands of loyalty and whether a good friend would ask us to do something wrong and what we ought to do when they when they do that. And then towards the end of the book, he also talks about how to criticize friends. And he tells us that um, this is actually a very necessary thing. And he's not being sort of, you know, he's he's not saying we should be passive aggressive about this or, you know, look for opportunities to criticize people. He just thinks that within the course of human relationships, being the kinds of not not entirely finished products that we are, morally speaking, we are going to screw up and we need our friends, he says, not just to warn us or to advise us. The Latin term for that <clears throat> could mean either, but also to like tell us that we got things wrong. And then he gives some advice for how do you do that? You know, and he says, well, you, you need to avoid insult on the one hand, and you should also avoid harshness. Um, the word that he uses there, it, it could be trans, it, transliterated as asperity, right? Which, which is kind of a, a, a dryness or harshness. And, you know, he, he really thought that this was something that people need to pay attention to. And I think he's completely right. In our own life, you know, if you're the kind of person who can't take criticism, in, in some ways, you can't be a good friend or a good lover or a good spouse because you, you're continually keeping people at a distance that prevents not just, you know, growth on your part, which would be good, but also genuine intimacy. But it but it sucks to get criticized, right? It, it's no fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I absolutely agree that, you know, for a actual good, strong relationship, you should be very open 
um, with how you see the other person and the a, a mark of I guess personal development and a good relationship is that you are able to take those things without feeling like you are being attacked. What if and, you are being attacked though? What if what if you have oh. a partner who's not fully developed and and is using it as an opportunity to try to, you know, control or dominate you or, you know, humiliate you to make themselves feel good. Um, then I think you have larger problems than just <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, yeah. Cato it gets gets oh no, it was it's Scipio who gets mentioned in there. No, it actually it is Cato. I'm 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 going back and forth oscillating between these I assume the people. younger, correct? Yeah. And Cato complained and Cicero records this about people who only learn the truth of themselves from their enemies who say how things actually are and, and criticize them on that basis in, in a, a spirit of, you know, malice or ill will. Mm-hmm. And they don't learn who they are from their friends because their friends are unwilling to tell them the the things about themselves that need to be challenged or, or changed. And he says these people are really in a bad bad situation because they're not going to listen to their enemies they you know they hate the enemies and they're the people who should be helping them by gently informing them of you know what they need to change or what they need to at least take a look at won't won't do it for them so you know what what do you think is there is there an obligation to i don't think any of your friends should be sycophants to just be yes men to your ideas and and i actually had a, a personal experience with this where i had a friend who i was like i had to give some like blatant or not blatant but like blunt um experience of like how i was experiencing our relationship and the some of the things that he was doing within it yeah and um and he he responded in a very angry way um, because I was, I guess, telling him the way that I saw the things. And I, I tried to put it in a kind way, but I wasn't trying to say, you're you're doing perfectly fine. Uh, and, and at that point in time, it really became apparent that I needed to end this relationship, that this was the person, that the, at least at this point in time, is not the person that I um, could have as a full confidant and um, treat with the respect that I felt like I should be giving a friend. Yeah. You know, and that, that points towards another factor that is identified early on in, in ancient literature uh, connected with, with friendship. You know, we, we feel affection or desire towards people quite quickly, but that by itself isn't the basis for friendship or a romantic relationship. You know, we, we, it takes time to develop intimacy in a sense of where we can go and where we can't go. Um, you know, Aristotle has this proverb that he takes from earlier authors about needing to consume a barrel of salt together. Now, he doesn't mean like a giant, you know, 50-gallon drum. <laughs> he, means, he means like the sort of thing that would sit on your, your table uh, and you would sprinkle, you know, a bit of salt at each meal. And the idea is you need to consume a lot of meals together in order to, to genuinely become... Uh, friends with each other in order to get to know the person well because uh, we can we can often be mixed up about about these sorts of things first first appearances can be deceiving we can generalize too much from uh, single instances and so I mean this is something I think we'll, we'll we'll talk about a little bit more this development of of intimacy over time yeah uh 
first impressions are, are very sticking, usually. And I, I guess I have definitely used uh, certain markers, especially, if, you know, going out to dinner and trying to oh, yeah. uh, see how they actually interact with the wait staff because yeah, I think yeah. that's a, a pretty good yardstick of kind of like, okay, how does this person treat those people that could be presented as lesser than them? Or, or, or they're in their power, so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, I use that all the time in, in my ethics classes for my young students, and they, like, totally relate to it because some of them have actually worked in restaurants or they've worked, you know, they've worked retail and they've, they've been in the, the bad end of the stick of that sort mm-hmm. of treatment. Uh, and then I always see, like, you know, a couple kids in the class get thoughtful, and they're and I, I'm, I'm picturing to myself that maybe they're remembering instances where somebody they know didn't treat um, service workers well, you know, or maybe they're, they're remembering their own cases where they didn't, and they're, they're now thinking, oh, man, I need to work on this sort of thing. <laughs> what's, what's going on with my, my, my assumptions and how I look at people, right? Right. And so, I don't know, I'm going to switch tracks just a little bit and uh, bring up the idea that you shouldn't have a partner or a relationship in order to try to fix you. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, That you don't need to be um, a perfect uh, person in, in perfect mental health to have good relationships, but the idea is that you shouldn't be reliant upon that person to be the one that is fixing you. Uh, that you you shouldn't be using your um, your partner as uh, something to fill in your own holes. Uh, you should be there to complement that person and yeah. not the other. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point, and I, I think a lot of people get themselves into trouble because we're we're you know we're kind of driven by this lack within ourselves, and then we get all these cultural messages that you know whether they come from music or magazine spreads or uh, movies or pick whatever you like in our popular culture that that portrays this as central to relationships you know people oh you complete me you know uh that 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 whole line Mm -hmm. um well you know the person might complete you but the completed uh thing might actually be a monstrosity you know maybe (laughs) maybe you you you, kind of belong together because you're both messed up but you you know sort of like uh imagine like legos that have been you know warped by heat or something like that they they fit Mm. together but it's a terrible composition and it won't fit in with anything else so that's that's one thing and then you know a lot of times people they get into relationships and i know i've had this experience myself you're you're very excited at the beginning of it. You feel like the person is completing you in some way, and that lasts for you know a month or two, and then suddenly you realize that uh, there's things about them that you know you you really don't like, and they may be things about yourself that you also don't like as well. So it's not it's not as as perfect as the honeymoon phase portrayed it as being, and, and I think there's a lot of other problems with this notion that we we want the other person to like fill in all the gaps within ourselves um there's a lot to be said about that yeah and you know related is this idea that you shouldn't have your 
happiness be dependent upon oh yeah you know your your partner this is kind of now, a very why similar idea why why is uh, that a bad idea because then your happiness is outside of your own control that you know you your your mood will be contingent upon you know potentially your your partner's mood or something along those lines but i mean if we want to play devil's advocate here shouldn't you shouldn't you care about you know your relationship with your partner and how they feel and what's going on with them shouldn't shouldn't that isn't that a sign that they matter to you that that affects you i don't think those two things are in conflict at all how, how uh, so? because <laughs> That's good. That, no you're right yeah but um because uh, to put it as a dichotomy and set it up like that is is a false dichotomy i don't um so uh i i can care about you know my my partner's happiness and whatnot but if um if I can't be happy just because my partner is happy, um, then I feel like that's a failing upon yourself. You know, it's interesting. As you were talking about that, I was thinking about like partners who want their partners to, they would say empathize with them or, or commiserate with them, but they really want their partners to be angry with them at the same people. They come home and they talk about how their boss is a jerk and their coworkers are awful and, you know, the bus ride or whatever it's going to be. And the right response is, yeah, those SOBs, who were they to do that to you, right? Mm-hmm. That's not actually a good dynamic, though. And, <clears throat> you know, I was also thinking, too, Aristotle in discussing friendship, and I think this applies to other relationships as well, he says that one of the key traits of it is that we um, share in the other person's joys and we share in their their sorrows. And he, he uses mm-hmm. those two emotional modalities. And I think there's probably something to that. You know, if, if you so like if, if I tell you that uh, which I, I will be doing eventually that that one of my pets has, has died and I'm, I'm really sad about it and you don't and you're just like, well, you know. Death comes to us all, you know. I'm not going to view you as, as 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 sharing in my sorrow. Obviously, I don't want you like tearing your beard out and you know render renting rending rending your clothes like they did in the ancient gnashing my teeth. <laughs> exactly, that would be that would be crazy and excessive mm-hmm. and actually a little scary. But um, you know, we we expect there to be some sort of reaction. So is there is there um. How do you know? What are the the right sorts of empathizing or even sympathizing in the sense of of feeling the same thing without without falling into what some of the philosophers call emotional contagion? You know, you get angry at at I don't know some some perceived offense, and I'm like, oh, I can't believe they did that to Dan. You know, um, <laughs> and now I'm just as angry as you are. Obviously, we don't we don't want that. Is there is there a line we can draw? Well, I think the first good line is to be very, very cautious of anger and being a contagious anger. Yeah. Because that's, that's going to lead you to uh, potentially very negative outcomes that are not actually in the benefit of anyone. Um, and, you know, I, I also have that experience of, like, you know, your partner wanting, you know, coming home and just venting and... and like always being angry about like the same things over and over and wanting you to be angry. And it just, it puts me into a very negative headspace where I want to commiserate with this person, but also um, noticing that it has a, a, a visceral effect on my personal, yeah. my personal experience, my emotional state and that a, I would rather not have. And in a way it puts you in a bad 
position as far as um, the assumptions you have to make, right? So let's say two different partners, right? We have one who comes home and they're legitimately angry about how their boss treated them at work and their boss really did do the wrong things. I think it would make sense to feel some anger, although not, you know, like I'm going to, you know, trash the apartment kind of kind of thing uh, mm-hmm. about that because you you um, you see that there's a legitimate beef there. And, and then maybe you're like, well, you know, it doesn't actually help to get angry in this case. Let's sort of sit down and figure out what we can do. You know, maybe you need a new mm-hmm. boss, meaning you need a new workplace. And then there's the one who comes in and they are angry about things. But the stuff that they're angry about is unreasonable. They took offense when they didn't need to take offense and they blew things out of proportion. And if you're supposed to, like, go down their path, that means that you have to take on mis- mistaken assumptions and sort of it's almost like you have to do like a uh, you have have to overcome the cognitive dissonance of saying to yourself this is unreasonable uh, in order to be able to say I I totally agree with you and then you know you're worse off in part not just because you're angry but because you're you're angry about stuff that doesn't matter that stuff that isn't true you 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 disalign yourself with the true, the right, the good in order to fit in better with your partner. And, and, you know, you could say, well, maybe that's the value there, right? Being in alignment with somebody who you love and care about and want to spend time with. But if they're that out of whack with reality, they're going to keep getting you more and more out of whack with reality. And that's not going to be good for either one of you, right? Right. And uh, one of the techniques that I've found to be very useful for these situations is to ask, what do you want in this situation? Do you, yeah. do you want to have to vent and have a little catharsis or, um, or do you want me to help you solve this problem? Um, and that, or that's the first, do you, or do you want me to bust up the place? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and a lot of times the, the, what your partner just needs is to to vent, but then it gets to the point of kind of a what is it a, a chicken little problem or the boy who cried wolf where okay yeah if it's the same thing over and over and over then you become start to become numb to this thing and then when something actually of consequent happens then you have been conditioned to say okay yeah it's just a, a thing yeah I feel bad for you as well and and uh, you know grr to them um, <laughs> but but now you're you are have a mismatch between the the actual necessary things that might need to be done versus uh what you are actually ex- uh, expressing to your partner yeah what do you think about some of the other emotions so I mentioned Aristotle said we should share in the joys and share in the the sorrows or sadnesses should we share in the sadness uh, of things with our our partners? Maybe not, in a, you know, not in every case. Like if they are mm-hmm. seriously depressed, that doesn't mean that in order to love them, we have to become seriously depressed as well. But you know, uh, something something bad does happen, or they they're looking around at the situation that we're in, and they they feel down about that. Um, is there some is there some value in sharing in that? with them you know it's a negative emotion right Mm -hmm. um i I think especially in order to deal with grief 
you know. Oh uh, yeah, that's that's a, that. Yeah, should should we distinguish between like being down and 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 grieving, where grief is due to loss? Um, sure. Yeah, especially when we're just talking about you know general malaise. Yeah. You know, and uh, maybe a minor depression or something along those lines. You know, definitely want to maybe comfort them, but to to share in someone's depression is not probably productive for anyone. Uh, but especially within, you know, grief, you've, you've got a loss. It is a, a one-time event usually. And then, but that is, is something usually very emotionally uh, jarring that, you know, we have these, you know, strong connections to these people. And I absolutely think that relationships are, um, uh, a very good way to deal with these types of of loss, and and yeah. I, I absolutely agree with Aristotle there. You know, if you want to go to other emotions like jealousy or, oh. or greed or uh, <laughs> envy, uh, envy, yeah, yeah, uh, then I think that's probably not going to be a good thing to share in. Yeah, yeah, we could. I mean, we could talk about. Uh, other malice, right? Delighting in somebody else, feeling mm-hmm. feeling pain. Um, maybe there's there's or or yeah, there's there's quite a few negative emotions that we wouldn't want to take on. And you do see people in relationships kind of urging each other with those, right? Kind of amplifying that, almost like a feedback loop. Yeah, I wonder how that feels within a a military context especially if you're in active combat and you're you're sharing in i guess the delight of victory over an enemy but it's also the the little bit of that schadenfreude of that like having happiness at the misfortune of others yeah uh, although usually it's those others who are trying to shoot at you so you've got a, a pretext for um you know wanting them injured or dead or taken off the field or something like that. I, I, I would also, I mean, with the military thing brings up like fear as well. Sometimes raw mm-hmm. terror, you know, that I guess a, a shared courage would be something that I would promote. Yeah. Um, and there we're talking more about a disposition than just, just an emotion. Right. Um, but I, I, if you look at courage as like, uh, fortitude in the face of fear. Yeah, feeling feeling a kind of confidence, um, capacity to handle things. Yeah, I mean that could be certainly amplified. You know, uh, that's actually a good point. There are, there are quite a few things that we need other people to be working with us on. Uh, so, <clears throat> thinking about a military unit, right? If you're if you're like super soldier, you know, whoever, we'll call him GI Joe, and uh, you're the most, you know. Uh, accomplished military person will make you infantry, you know, but, but you've got, you know, the capacity to carry all sorts of heavy weapons as well, just like in video games, right. Which are totally unrealistic when it comes to, to this sort of stuff. Um, you know, we, we portray that person as if he's able or she's able to operate entirely on their own, but that isn't the way anything actually works in, in the military. You're constantly dependent on a whole train of people resupplying you and the people next to you. And if they're screw ups, you know, I actually, so I'll, I'll tell you kind of a, an interesting story that that brings to mind. 
I was I was in the army and I got I went in in '89, uh, not that long before the the wall came down and we like totally had to change our what we were going to do because Warsaw Pact fell apart and the Soviet Union was falling apart and, and that's what we were primed to do in Germany. That's what we were training for, and I was a combat engineer, which meant, means that I did infantry stuff and I also did demolitions and set up barriers and minefields and all all, all sorts of really fun things to do. And there were people in our unit, and we, we used to call them the cheesers. And, and, you know, there's all sorts of names for these sorts of people. These were the guys who really didn't know their jobs very well, and they were kind of jerks, but they were really obsessed with, like, keeping their uniform pressed and their boots, you know, shined up. And they sort of, you know, the, they were like great picture soldiers. Um, and they would always, you know, kind of kiss the rear ends of whoever was in charge. But they, they weren't very good soldiers. And then we'd have all sorts of, you know, other people. So a lot of these were our NCOs who were kind of grizzled and, you know, didn't keep themselves up all that well. And there was at that time, unfortunately, they were they were enjoying the dividends of peace by getting rid of a lot of people. And they, you know, they were getting rid of um, people who were really good non-commissioned officers and writing them up over stupid things like, you know, not having their boots shined at the proper time. And they would create a paper trail and then they'd kick them out so they couldn't so they couldn't collect a pension. Some of them with 17 years of service in shortly after that. Um, and they were then they were just like kicking people out like crazy. And, and I actually took the early out because I, I didn't I didn't want to be in, in, in our unit anymore, um, seeing what was going on. Shortly after that, Desert Shield started. Now nobody could get out. And a lot of the good people who you would want to go into combat with had been phased out. And a lot of the people who were, you know, wonderful, uh, uh, you might call them guardhouse soldiers, but were not particularly good soldiers, they were in. And they were the ones who got rank. And, and you think to yourself, okay, if you're a combat engineer and you're in Iraq and they've got minefields and the mines are not just regular conventional mines, but chemical mines, if one guy screws up, that's going to screw up the whole squad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's potential, and unfortunately, this didn't happen that way. But we were thinking about these things. You actually, you, you, you want to have people lined up with you who are good at what they do and are properly disposed, morally speaking, you can't function by yourself doing really good things without a nexus of relationships of other decent people. And we can transpose this into business settings. We can talk about, you know, for example, our organization, the the Milwaukee Stoic Fellowship, which I think is a pretty good organization. We have people who are like doing things, including yourself, right? You you created this, the walk and talks and continued Mm -hmm. that, right? Um, I'm really happy because then I don't, I don't have to like do much leadership stuff anymore. You know, the idea was to phase it off to to, to other people (laughs) and, and you want that sort of thing. And in a relationship, Obviously, you're not going to like, you know, outsource your relationship duties in a relationship. That would be that would be nonsense. But you, you you do need to have a partner who isn't just depending on on you to be the sole um, provider, the the sole person who's who's contributing good things to it. You know, the sole support. And likewise, you don't want to be the, the the needy one in that sense. You you got to like you know. You don't have to necessarily do everything, but you have to be able to do some things competently in your relationship, right? So that so right. that we're not just codependent, uh, to use the psychological term, 
And this comes back to, so, to that one thing that you, you started with, like needing the other person to be the complement of yourself, right? And compliment mm-hmm. could be two things. It could be like, well, we do fill in the, the, the areas where even though we're striving really hard and doing everything we need to do, um, we're still falling short. And then there's the like, I'm a lazy person who's got huge holes in, in what I can do. And I go to this other person to like make me whole. One, one mm-hmm. is good and one is bad, right? Yeah, it's the idea that you should feel good helping your partner, but you shouldn't be dependent upon it. That you know, look at it as the, the cherry on top of your Sunday that oh, you should yeah, have yeah. Um, uh, well-being within your own life um, and that you, you shouldn't be dependent upon your partner to make sure that you have you know some semblance of well-being. Yeah, I mean, there could be cases where, like, okay, you get really sick. Um, oh yeah, or um, something else happens. You know, you're 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 you brought up depression. You're disabled by depression and grief for for a while, while your partner is there to help support you. Then, right? Right, and and you know, you hope that that person is there for you, and vice versa, in the future. Yeah. Um, I guess what I'm thinking like is not you know uh, physical maladies, but like your um your emotional well-being that okay. what you find to be a, a flourishing life or a well-being within your own life, especially in the psychological sense. Yeah. That makes good sense. Yeah. This is also not, not including, you know, uh, clinical depression and whatnot. These are outside of the scope of what I'm thinking here. Yeah. And, and if you think about the, the sources of tensions within relationships that, that break things down, um, very often they have to do not just, you know, there's, there's the finances, there's sex, there's whether or not like in a, in a romantic relationship you want to have children. But I think a lot of, a lot of the tensions that arise within a relationship have to do with, um, who's giving who attention and, um, you know, the, the nature of the relationship, whether the relationship is itself being valued or whether, um, people are taking advantage of each other yeah so uh i think we need to switch gears here and talk about um our question of the week yeah and this is actually a good segue because you know it's about finances right yeah so uh, i guess the main topic is am i the jerk for making more money than my so do you want to expand on that greg sure so we, we you know we like to look around on on some of the Reddit forums for these interesting questions that come up. And there, there is one there and it's not actually called, am I the jerk? We're using that as a euphemism because we're not going to say the word on, on the air, but you, you know what forum it is. And it's by a uh, woman in her thirties who was working a bad job and she wound up um, because of this, this crisis that we're in. She says, I was recently informed I'd have to work additional Overtime to help with the influx of loans provided by the government. Uh, to top it off, I got a bonus recently on top of my raise. Plus the overtime and the stimulus checks means I have more money in my pocket than I have had in the last two years. I was really struggling before all this happened and had to do things on the side just to get by. My partner recently got his hours cut at his job and we're not certain if he will have a job at the end of the month. Prior to this, he was having a lot of financial trouble. And then she she goes a little bit, skipping down, she says, um, 
When I got the news I would be working overtime, my boyfriend got upset with me that I was being insensitive to him about how good I have it now and that I have all this money. I feel really alone here in not being able to share my good news with anyone, and I thought he would be happy for me considering how severely unhappy I was to prior to getting this position. But the joy literally got sucked out of me, and I can't even buy something nice for myself uh, without seeming like I'm an insensitive jerk. So then she asks, am I, am I the jerk? And I, I think the answer is definitely no. What do you think, Dan? Um, I am in complete agreement here. <laughs> and, and I think this is really comes down to what the, um, her partner has as a preconceived conception of what his role in that relationship is. And especially within the Western world in the United States, um, there's been studies that say that once a, um, a woman in a relationship makes about 40% of the total income of a, um, a partner's gross income, that that's a time where it starts to become a problem for the man because there's a preconceived notion that the man is the one that's supposed to make the money to bring home the bread. And there's a, a cognitive disconnect that he's having between what he expects and what his reality is. And he might not even be aware of that. Yeah. And I, I think we have to take those, those findings with, you know, some, some grain of salt, right? Because yeah. obviously it changes I think I think generationally that that changes a bit like, uh, you know, if we're looking at younger people now, maybe those numbers would be a little bit um, lower than, say, baby boomers. But there, there definitely can be a lot of rancor about these sorts of issues. And I actually see a larger issue here, which is one partner suddenly doing well in some area and the other partner feeling like they're not. They're not getting to participate in that in, in some way, right? It makes them feel bad. So, like, it, it could be – I'll give you an example that could, could apply to, to my life. So um, my, my own wife, in, in many respects, is way more accomplished than I am when it comes to uh, connections within all sorts of different intellectual and practical spheres. Um, and, you know, I, you know my, my response is, is, isn't – Oh, well, now I'm somehow less because she has become, you know, appointed to this board or, you know, president of this or involved in this really cool project or anything like that. Um, it's rather to say, oh, that's really great. You know? <laughs> now, I, I, it could also be, oh, that's really great because now I don't have to do anything myself and I can just like, you know, h hang on her coattails. I don't have that reaction either. <laughs> that would be another thing. But I, I think and, and, and we, we do want to, you know, we don't want to say that that's good, right? Um, you know, Aristotle, in, in, interestingly, Aristotle talks about a passion that he calls emulation, which is the translation of the Greek zealos that we get the word zeal from. Mm -hmm. And when you're, when you're feeling emulation, it's not the same thing as feeling envy. When you're envious, you want the other person to fail so that you don't feel bad about you know, your own lack of success. Emulation is when you see somebody who actually deserves to, to be recognized for what they're doing, um, getting honored or something like that. And you're like, oh, man, I wish that was me, but I wish I actually deserved that. Like, so when I see like a, a colleague write a really good book, one of my reactions is that that feeling. And it's not envy. 
I don't, you know, I, I'm like, oh man, I wish I could have written that book, but I can't because, you know, that's not my area of specialization and they're the person to have written the book. So good for them. Right. <laughs> that's, that's actually a good response, but, but it seems like her boyfriend has the opposite response, you know, her right, doing well he, is taking away from him in some way. Yeah. I think he, he's looking at this, uh, uh, to a certain extent, like a competition yeah, that, very, yeah. um, that there's, there's a winner and a loser in this particular thing. And, you know, it kind of goes back to our talking about game theory earlier, the idea of a zero sum game yeah. versus a positive sum game. And that, you know, uh, your partner's, benefit should be your benefit and it, it doesn't mean that there's anything taken away from you yeah so actually if we want to use that we could say there's the zero-sum game mentality on one side at one extreme and then there's the well that's great that you're succeeding i'm going to be a parasite mentality on the other oh. side right at another right. extreme and then there's some something healthy in the middle and, and i like the idea of the emulation that there's you know uh, I would call a, a healthy relationship one that uh, each partner is happy for their the other's success as well as uses yes. that as maybe motivation to um, increase their own success, however they want to define that. Yeah, you know, and there's, again, this goes back to, to a great uh, topic discussed in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Um, he, in, in Book 9, when he's discussing friendship, he talks about... Um, competition and whether it's okay to be self-loving, philautos in, in Greek. And he says that a lot of people say that if you're, if you're self-loving or selfish, that you're a bad person because of that. And he says, well, no, it depends on the kinds of things that it has to do with. So if it's, if it's things that really are kind of a zero-sum game, like money or honor or attention, if I get more of it, you get less of it. So if I desire to have more than my fair share, I'm depriving you, right? So I shouldn't be selfish in that respect. But when it comes to other things that can be shared, and if, if I possess, I'm not taking away from you, like moral virtue or wisdom or really any of the things that are, that are core to who we are, um, the fact that I do well by becoming courageous doesn't mean you become less courageous as a result as if it somehow like flows out of you and into me, right? Instead, you can, that can help you be more courageous. And if I share the knowledge that I have with you, it's not like it goes out of my head into your head, like we're copying files or something, right? Um, or actually rather moving files. Instead, we, we replicate something in somebody else. And so he says we should be in competition with each other to who can be the most virtuous. And if we do that, it's not going to hurt anybody because we're going to be doing good things. And I think that makes really good sense within a relationship. Um, it doesn't mean that both partners have to like try to outdo each other and who can make the most money. That's, that's, that's probably not going to be helpful. But well, in, then you're you're just participating in avarice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I don't. Know, I think we might want to move to practice here, or yeah, do you I still have that, more to talk about? No, I think that 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 wraps that up pretty well. Mm -hmm. So we've got a, a practice here, which is um, speak without judging, which seems to be a very useful school skill to have with your own partner and. Um, so you should reserve, or the, the practice is to reserve judgment of things for you do not have all the information about why they are doing it. Doubly so, speak without judgment to your partner. 
So what what would it be? What would be an example of speaking without judgment to your partner? A common case that we would run across. Um, a lot of times it's just uh, try to avoid using the words like good or bad, and try oh, to okay. um, speak in in the objective terms. So like um, you know, uh, calling um, someone that that um, drinks too much. I guess you could say. Um, he drinks too much instead of he drinks poorly or he's he's a drunk because then you are adding the emotional stigma of that is a negative thing and it might actually come to a negative outcomes but um in order to actually help that person move forward they don't want to be labeled with the uh the label of bad but it is now which is something that is a uh an adjective to describe the person and more to the point of uh, describing the particular action, and the actions are a lot easier to change than a, a, a badness or a goodness of a person. So there's there's two good sides to this, right? There's the side of yourself, which is that you're not by not labeling them, you're not going down all those trains of thought where you have to say, well, uh, why am I even with this kind of person? Um, you know, or I should do something to retaliate against this person, or I need to be on guard against this, this person who's always this way. People do often use always never language when it comes to these, these sorts Mm -hmm. of things. And then, like you said, when you're actually dealing with your partner, you can preclude pushing their buttons, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Doing things that are going to keep them from hearing what you're genuinely bothered by and would like to see getting getting fixed in some way so another example of this would be like say um your partner has just come back from a workout or a run or something and now they've been sweating and they they have a rank smell to them <laughs> and um you know you say like oh you know you're you you bathe poorly no they just you know you didn't you maybe uh, you weren't aware that they had just come back from some sort of workout. And so all of a sudden, the, the, the initial impression that you're getting is just that they smell bad. And you can either say, uh, you, uh, hey, at this point in time, you might need to uh, bathe, but not to say that you bathe poorly. is Or that uh, you just have with, poor personal hygiene, right? Is how we yeah. probably say it today. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's actually a, a really good example because it, what it points to is, in many cases, going along with this, maybe what we need to do is get more information. You know, if, if um, like, we don't know that the person just got back from working out, um, they, just, they just come in and um, they... Uh, plop themselves down on the couch and we don't know that they're planning on taking a shower in half an hour or something like that. Mm-hmm. If we ask them questions, we can find out, oh, um, you you actually are going to deal with this. And there's so many other relationship things, I think, where people are quite worried that their partner isn't going to take this thing seriously or is going to act this way all the time, not realizing that it's it's a unusual situation, you know? Yeah, it, it kind of, plays into the um the fundamental attribution error bias well say something about that because that's not a term everyone's gonna know (laughs) absolutely and so the fundamental attribution error is the idea that you um have in your mind that um you have made decisions based on certain circumstances but you're more predisposed to 
may uh, the idea that other people's decisions are based on their character. Oh, and right. so that yeah, and so this you know the you know the, your partner works out they're going to take a shower in a, a half hour, on uh, and so you think like oh you know he's just a, a slob. Whereas he's like, yeah, but I had to do this thing before, you know, I have a, a timeline, I have to do this, and I'm expecting to do that in a moment, whereas your your partner might be thinking like, oh, he's just a slob, and that is his character, and now I have to, like, reassess, do I actually want to be in a relationship with a person that's a slob? Yeah, or do I want to, like, go after them and criticize them for their slobbishness? Now, here's a question. What do we do about people who genuinely are... You know, they, they do have bad habits. They, they you know, like let's take the, <clears throat> the example we were talking about before, the person who wants you to always be their ally and being angry against other people. I know I, I had a previous relationship like this, and it ended when I, when I quit doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Within a week of saying, you know, these people aren't as bad as you make them out to be, the relationship was finished. <laughs> Because <laughs> right. she wasn't getting out of it what, what, what she, she wanted. So what, what, what should we do when we've got partners who maybe they're, they're good in other ways, but there are genuinely problematic aspects of their, their personality or their character? What would you say? Well, yeah, as we spoke about earlier, it's the, uh, the ability to have a good relationship is, uh, to a certain extent, dependent upon their ability to not be a sycophant to not always be mm, the yes yeah, man that right. agrees with them and to give them some blunt advice um at least in the way that you see that and if they can't um take that advice it makes it really difficult to have a relationship in that regard yeah so there's kind of a you know there's no like hard and fast rules for this this is where prudence would would come in right yeah um and it's going to be different for every person and everyone's on a journey of their own life and trying to become a better person. Hopefully. Do you think it's helpful to have other people involved in the situation, giving advice, giving counsel or, you know, because of the intimacy of a relationship, the fact that people are looking in only through really limited windows, is it better to like keep them, keep them out? I I think if you don't have that ability to be candid, then there's uh, a aspect of one relationship that I feel that you could definitely improve upon. Yeah, that's, you know, that may be actually a great topic to pick up next time. I see we're getting close to the end of our our hour. Any last thoughts? Uh, I, hopefully, I, I, I wish everyone good health within their relationship and uh, whatnot. You? Well, I had to have this really nice line by Rilke, uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, who talks about genuine love as being two solitudes protecting and bordering and greeting each other. And I think that's like, it's, it's the epitome of what we're, we're talking about here, provided we understand what he means by solitude. Thank you, Greg. And we leave you today with the words of Maya Angelou. If you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude.